Thank you, Mike. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, the second chapter of the book of Jeremiah there in the Old Testament. And uh, even though Mike may take a uh, spontaneous moment to, um, to speak and preach, I promise you I will not take a spontaneous moment to sing as he, uh, as he does. So he can do two things really well, I cannot. So I'll just stick, stick, to, the, uh, stick to, the, to the speaking part. That is great. I heard a, a comment I remember way back, way back when uh, some famous person that I no longer remember made the comment regarding the Trinity, you know, one God. God, who has revealed himself in three persons, he said, try to explain the Trinity and you lose your mind, fail to embrace the Trinity and you lose your soul. And uh, what a great truth that is, that there are things too deep for us to fully understand how God, one God, reveals himself in three persons. I will never be smart enough this side of heaven to figure that out, but uh, I'm sure grateful that the Bible gives us enough evidence to trust that by faith and to give our lives to Christ. So... Jeremiah chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. It's not a brand new series, just kind of a standalone message. I've got a kind of an idea of a series we're going to begin here in a couple of weeks, and so you'll hear a little bit more about that here soon. But today, Jeremiah chapter 2, with a message entitled, The Demise of a Well Digger. The Demise of a Well Digger. You're already thinking, what in the world is this going to be all about? We're going to find out. Hopefully, you'll understand a little better by the time the message is over than, uh, than you do when the message starts. So Jeremiah chapter 2 is where we're going to be here in just a few minutes. When I was a kid, you know, we, uh, we, we used to invent a lot of games. I guess this is my moment of, um, you know, showing my age a little bit because I, this, this is where I can vent and say, you know, kids today, <laughs> they have videos and, you know, all this stuff. I won't go too far down that road. We had videos when I was a kid too. But uh, I will say that we were really good at creating and inventing our own, our own games. I used to make up all kind of games. I've got a, you know, a, a big family with my oldest sister, 17 years older than me. And my, uh, I've got another sister and then my brother who's closest to me now age seven years older than me so we're all really spread out so I say all that to say I had a lot of alone time growing up even though two sisters and a brother you know I still had to kind of create my own little games and you know but you know just sort of make my own fun in a way but there were some others in our neighborhood that I grew up with and uh, we would often play a game that we called spotlight any of you ever play spotlight when you're a kid I'm just curious there were some really deprived people in the first service that uh, just never seemed to be able to enjoy a good game of spotlight spotlight is just it's hide-and-go-seek at night with a, with a flashlight. It's real creative, and uh, that's, that's all it was. And so there were five of us, you know, that grew up together, five of us guys, and uh, we would play Spotlight at times at night. And it, obviously it would be... It'd be dark because it had to be, and you just sort of grab a, you know, a flashlight from, from your mom or your dad, and, and if you were it, then you had to go find all the other people that were hiding and, and find them. And I will say, the, the creepy factor was very high, depending on whose yard you played spotlight in, because there were some yards in our neighborhood that were really, really creepy, <laughs> including my own. And, uh, and so depending on whose yard were in, you were in, depended on, on how creepy the game was. But the, the whole premise was very simple. You had a flashlight, and you go to look for people who were hiding, and when you found them that you just said spotlight on you know spotlight on so-and-so spotlight on you and then you know they were they were out of the game well here's the thing that I've learned and I know this is not going to be earth-shattering for you but here's what I learned it did not matter how wholeheartedly you searched and it didn't even matter how much effort you put into it or how sincerely you searched for the other person that was hiding being wholehearted in your efforts and being sincere in your desire to find the other person really did nothing to help you to find the person. What mattered most was looking in the right place. Now, I know that's earth-shattering for you, right? 
But regardless of your sincerity, regardless of your efforts, if you were not looking in the right place, you would not find the person who was hiding. So let me just say all that to say this, that every single one of us in our lives, in some way, in some shape, in some form, are searchers. And we all search for something in our lives. We all search for some, some things that are superficial, you know, but really all of us at the heart of who we are are searching for things that, that are deeper, you know, we're searching for things, not so much the career, right? That's on the service. We're searching for a sense of, of value, something that we have accomplished. We're searching for things in a variety of ways that only God can fill. Things that are deep, deeply embedded in our lives. We are all searchers at the core of who we are. There are some, I would say, be willing to say here in this setting this morning, based on the size of this group, some of you that are searching for joy in the midst of your circumstances. Your circumstances have headed south, all right? You've got some changes that have come maybe in the workplace or in your family dynamics. You've had changes that have come in your life, and you're searching for joy that's going to be unrelated and disconnected from your circumstances so that you can say, you know what, I have joy even though something else in my life is falling apart. And you're searching for that kind of joy. You don't know where to find it. You hope one day you find it, but you're searching for that kind of a joy that's disconnected from the circumstances in which you often find yourself. Some of you, you're searching for purpose in your life. You know, you're at a place in your life, maybe a stage of life or an age or somewhere in your work setting where you've thought to yourself here recently, you know what, I, there's got to be more. You know, I, I'm not really happy in my job. I'm not happy with what I'm doing uh, uh, Monday through Friday in, in my work life. I, there, there's got to be something more. And I'm searching for purpose in my life. Maybe for you, you're searching for something in regards to relationship. You, you have a thirst, in a way, for uh, unconditional love in your life, and you've searched for it. You didn't have it modeled when you were a kid. You, know, you didn't really sense unconditional love in the house where you grew up. You didn't really see it demonstrated in your mom and dad. You, you, you have never really experienced it in your life the way that you hope to one day. And you have this sense of, of longing for unconditional love in your life, and you're searching you know, you're searching in relationships, you're searching in your family, you're searching in a lot of different ways, and every single one of us today, in some way, some shape, some form, are searchers, right? We're, we're wired to search. Well, here, here's what I want to look at this morning in Scripture, in the book of Jeremiah chapter 2, is that I want us to look at how God deals with those kinds of searchers, every one of us. And I want us to see in just a few verses here in the second chapter of the book of Jeremiah, I want us to see how he deals with the search and how he deals with the remedy for the things that we search for in our lives as well. So let me give you a little bit of a context in the book of Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah was one of those, I guess we would call him a major prophet. We don't call him a major prophet because he was more important than all the other prophets, all right? We call him a major prophet because the book that bear his, bears his name is a long book. It's a lengthy book. It's not a short book. Amos, minor prophet, little short book. Jeremiah, major prophet, big gigantic book, all right? So that's how we categorize him. If you ever study kind of the categorizations of Scripture, he's going to be termed a major prophet. He prophesied to God's people for over 40 years. He's known as a weeping prophet, and the reason for that is because when Jeremiah prophesied, the people that he spoke to as God's mouthpiece did not want to hear what he had to say. And as Jeremiah would stand and deliver faithfully for over 40 years God's word, God's truth, God's admonition, God's coming judgment, if they didn't sh uh, shape up you know, and begin to obey, it, that as he delivered that truth, the people of God, they just didn't want to hear it, right? So they stiff-armed him, they kicked him to the curb, uh, they tried to kill him. He suffered greatly because of his obedience to God. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. And he was known as the weeping prophet. So for 40 years, he was faithful. The time in which he was, was ministering was a time that was crucial for the people of God. 
300 years before Jeremiah, and I know you might not be much into history right now, but just follow me for a couple of minutes because it's important. 300 years before Jeremiah, you would see the nation of Israel basically divided into two nations. That was not a good thing. They became the divided kingdom, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Both were still God's people. You know, you would still see both of them. You'll read of them in the Old Testament as being God's people, but they were now a divided nation, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. About a hundred years before Jeremiah comes along, Israel to the north just blows it, right? They've been uh, sinning against God. They've been walking away from God. They had been chasing after false idols and ultimately kind of like World War I in Old Testament history cranked up and Israel, because of their sin, was taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. It was not a good season for Israel. They would be taken off out of their homeland. They'd be drug away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to a land that was not their own, to a language that was not their own. They had lost their heritage. They lost their identity. In many ways, they lost their land, so to speak, because they weren't living there any longer. It was a very hostile takeover in every sense of the word, and they suffered. The people of Israel did. That was about 150 years, 100 years or so, give or take, before Jeremiah would come along. So Jeremiah comes on the scene, and now he's going to be the prophet to Judah to the south. Israel to the north, they send it up, they disobeyed God, they chased it to false idols, World War I, so to speak, they're off in captivity. Now Judah is following the same exact track. So God sends Jeremiah. Jeremiah is going to be the mouthpiece. And as he stands and delivers this message, as I mentioned, they didn't want to hear it. And so ultimately what would eventually happen is that they also, Judah, would be taken off into captivity. But it would be Jeremiah that God would use as a mouthpiece to try to avoid that and to try to get them back on the right track of walking closely with God again. Well, there's a passage in Jeremiah chapter 2 that helps us to see really what was the heart of their problem. And at the same time, in that same passage, God gives the remedy. He gives the solution. And so writing to a group of people 2,600 years ago who were searching everything that we're going to read in just a moment is going to be applicable to people just like us who also search in much the same way. So let's jump in. Jeremiah chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 5. We're going to skip around a little bit, and there's one verse that I'll focus on here in just a moment. Chapter 2, verse 5. God kind of lays out the indictment, so to speak, verse 5, and he says, Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me, he says to the people of Judah, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? In other words here, God is just sort of laying out the issue. And he's saying to the people of Judah through Jeremiah, their prophet, he's saying, you know what, y'all aren't the first to wander. Israel did it, and there were others before them in in the nation of Israel who did it. But there is something to be said that when people wander, when there is distance between us and God, we have to ask ourselves, who is it that created that distance? It's not God, it's always us. And what God is saying here through Jeremiah, he's asking a very legitimate question. And the question was, well, what did I do wrong that caused people to leave me and to abandon me? And God is laying out an interesting picture here because he says that they're far from him and they walked after emptiness. And as a result of that, they became empty. Let me just say this up front before we go further. Anytime that we find ourselves at a place where there's distance between us and God, we have to always assume that that distance is created because of us. Yes, there are times when God seems silent 
Yes, there are times when God tests our faith, but more often than not, when we sense a distance between us and God, we need to look to ourselves first because more than likely it's something that we've done where our hearts have grown cold and we have created that distance. And God will always work to draw us close to himself because he desires relationship with us. But at the same time, we have to understand that whenever we begin to replace, whenever we abandon God, whenever we take a step away from God, we will always replace him with something else. That when there is distance between us and God, whenever he is no longer first in our lives, especially as Christians, whenever there is no longer a sense of closeness and a fellowship with God, we will always set out to replace him with something else. Why is that? Because we are wired to be dependent on someone, and only God can ultimately fulfill that for us. So you think about it, uh, people, in, in, people in your own life, people that you know who aren't walking closely with God, who once did, when they turn from him, there is something else they replaced, they replaced God with, and that's the way it always happens. God's saying here in verse, verse 5, he says, historically, my people have wandered from me, and when they have, they have walked after emptiness, and as a result of that, they have become empty. Look at verse 11. He says, has a nation changed gods when they, were not, when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. In other words, my people have walked away from me, God says, and as they've walked away from me, they have replaced me. And as a result of that, they're not better, they're worse. They're not more filled, they are still hungry. He says, they have ultimately experienced emptiness because they have pushed me to the curb. And in verse 13, now the verse where we're going to focus, God lays out a scathing indictment against his people. But at the same time, he also lays himself out as the answer to what plagues them the most. So let's look at verse 13 and here's where we'll camp for the rest of our time this morning. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew or to dig for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What an interesting passage of scripture that is. Verse, verse 13, let me read it again. God says, my people have committed two evils. There's two things that my people have done wrongly here. One, they've forsaken me. And then he describes himself as the fountain of living waters to hew or to dig for themselves cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that can hold no water. One truth I want you to see here to, to start off with, and the truth is this. That every single one of us, as we move through our lives, we ultimately learn, some sooner than others, that we have thirsts in our lives that have to be quenched. Every single one of us. This building is filled with thirsty people. And I'm not talking about a, a physical thirst, right? We all know what that means to be physically thirsty. If not, June and July and August are coming. We'll experience that plenty through the course of this summer, you know, here in this city at least. Uh, we all know what it's like to be physically thirsty. God is talking about something deeper here. And the picture he paints in this one verse is that every single one of us have thirsts in our lives that ultimately have to be quenched. Uh, think about when you were, uh, when you were in, in grade school or middle school. And uh, you'd have someone ultimately, you know, usually a friend, uh, that would say, hey, I dare you. And then, you know, they'd give you whatever the dare was. I dare you to do fill in the blank, right? Some of you, you still shudder when you think about because you took that dare and you, you still wish you never had. But, uh, but you remember what that was like. Here's what's happening. When someone says, just use this as an example, back in school days, when they would say, I dare you, here's what they're doing is they're, they're kind of putting you in a position to determine how powerful is that thirst for approval in your life. Now, you didn't know that as a fourth grader, did you? But when you think about it, what's at play is, are you willing to do something, one, that you know is wrong, two, is probably going to get me hurt, three, is going to get me in trouble with my mama, or am I going to take that dare and do what I'm not supposed to 
just for the sake of approval from this one person or this group that's daring me. That's kind of what's at play. How thirsty are you for acceptance and for approval? Those games don't end when we graduate. As we move through adulthood, that same game plays itself out where we chase after many times, as we'll see in just a second, all the options that this world offers to quench sometimes the deepest thirsts of our soul. And you were thirsty for something. You were thirsty more than likely for many, many things. And this verse, this passage at the very beginning helps us to understand that all of us have thirsts in our lives. Whether that thirst is for joy, as I mentioned earlier, above your circumstances. Whether that thirst is for acceptance. Whether that thirst is for some, some level of fulfillment in your life. Whether that thirst is, uh, is for victory over some sin or an addiction or discouragement in your life. All of us are thirsty for something. Here's the interesting thing about this passage. Let's go back to verse 13 for just a second. When you read this passage, here's the interesting thing. God does not condemn his people for being thirsty. I mean, re- read it again. He doesn't say that you've committed an evil, you're thirsty. He says, no, you've committed two evils. One, you've forsaken me. And two, you've tried to quench your thirst in your own way. He doesn't condemn us for being thirsty. He, he, here's why. Because our thirst in our lives, and I hope you understand kind of where I'm going with that, our thirst in our lives, the things that we long for, things that we need, like joy, like peace, like fulfillment, like, like a, a sense of unconditional love in our life. Those things that we search for in our lives, that we thirst for, have ultimately come as a result of the fall. Genesis 1 and 2. Mike alluded to it. In Genesis 1 and 2, whenever we sinned, or, or, or whenever God created us, we were in perfect communion with God. Everything that we needed was provided for. We were in perfect, unbroken fellowship with God, Genesis 1 and 2. In chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, that perfect relationship with God was broken. And ever since that time, we have thirst. We have longed for things that only God can ultimately provide. We even see it in chapter 4 in the book of Genesis, don't we? Because Adam and Eve would ultimately have children. And in the second generation, when Cain and Abel would be created, Abel would, would, or whenever they'd be born, Abel would come and offer a sacrifice to God. And God would accept it. Cain would offer a sacrifice to God, and God would not accept it. It would be unacceptable in his sight. What would, Abel, uh, what would Cain ultimately do? He would murder his brother. In only the second generation of people in existence, we find murder taking place. And why was it? Because one person's sacrifice to God was more acceptable than another person's sacrifice. There was a sense of thirst there that I want to be acceptable before God, and yours is acceptable and mine's not, so I'm going to deal with this on my own terms. And it's a reflection that sin creates thirst in our lives. We will never have perfect, unbroken fellowship with God until we, through a relationship with Christ, step foot into heaven. Until then, we will always have thirsts in our lives. We will always deal with temptation. We will always have circumstances that spiral seemingly out of control. We will always have to deal with those kinds of things. And yet God does not condemn us for being thirsty. What he condemns us for, if you want to use that terminology, is where we go to quench it. So principle number one, all of us have thirsts in our lives that have to be quenched. Principle number two, there are many temporary remedies that are available in this world in which we live. Many temporary remedies available for the thirst that we have. Here's how we see this in this passage. God introduces the whole concept of, a, uh, of, of water. He describes himself in verse 13. Let's go back to verse 13 again. He describes himself as the fountain of living water. 
If you've ever been in North Georgia or Colorado or North Carolina or wherever you know whitewater rafting is, then you've kind of seen this demonstrated, right? You, you've seen what living water looks like. When you hear living water spoken of in Scripture, it's a reference to purity. It's a reference to uh, 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 water that is active, water that is flowing, not stagnant, water that is filled with life. We, uh, we're, we're talking about vacation in our family sometime later on, hopefully this summer, and uh, I'm not a fan of whitewater rafting. I went uh, a lot of times back when I was in student ministry, and I kind of got my fill, so to speak. And plus, it just terrified me every single time that I went. And so Susie asked me yesterday, or didn't ask me, but she just kind of brought up, well, what about whitewater rafting? You know, why don't we do that as a family? I'm thinking, no, thank you. We're not going to do whitewater rafting. It's like we've got a five-year-old and a 50-year-old, and neither one of us enjoy whitewater rafting, I'm sure. And so, uh, so whitewater rafting probably, sorry, Hannah, but it's probably off the table, at least for, for this particular summer. But whenever you think about that, you get this picture of that kind of a river. It's just flowing. It's running. You know, it, it's always fed. It never runs dry. There's life that's there. God says, that, that's how he describes himself. I am the fountain of living water. But then he also paints this picture of water that is stagnant, water that has no inflow, no outflow, water that just grows stagnant and, and there's filled with bacteria and there's no life that's there. And the picture that he paints for that is a cistern, it's a well. In our um, recent mission trip to Cuba, uh, the guys on that particular team, we worked with construction there. And any of you guys that are here, you'll remember there were two cisterns on the property at the church, which was interesting. We don't have cisterns on our property here, but in Cuba there at Jellibert Baptist, they did. And those cisterns every day would have to be filled with water. And there was a boy, Jonathan, about 16 years old, who would lower the bucket into that that particular cistern, that well, after having taken off the big giant mason covering of it, right? He would take that off, he would lower this bucket down, and he would use it to help make mortar or cement or whatever it was we were mixing that particular day. The next day, that cistern would have to be filled again. It's stagnant water, it's not pure, it's not life-giving. And the picture that Jeremiah paints here is that the people in, in, in search of, of quenching their thirst would dig for themselves cisterns. In Old Testament days, that cistern would typically be on a person's property. It would be dug by hand. It would be lined with plaster, and then it would collect rainwater in order to be used for whatever needs they had. If you went to that cistern and you were looking for water and that plaster lining had cracked because of the hot Israel sun or because of time that had passed, if that plaster lining in that cistern had cracked, then you would come to that, to that cistern looking for, for water to fill your need and it would very possibly not even be there. It was a temporary remedy. And the picture that God is painting here is a very powerful picture. He says, my people have committed two evils. One, you have abandoned me. I'm the river. I'm the fountain of life-giving water. I am life itself. And you have abandoned me, he says to his people. And not only have you abandoned me, but you've replaced me. Because you always do. When you came me to the curb, you'll always replace me. And you've replaced me by your own efforts to try to quench your thirst in your own way. For the people of Judah, it was chasing after false gods. It was worshiping false idols. It was putting themselves before God. And they were suffering as a result of it. Didn't matter how sincere they were when they dug that well. It didn't matter how hard they worked when they dug that well. Sincerity and wholehearted effort would make no difference at all. If you were going to quench your thirst, you had to dig in the right place. And the people of Judah had been digging in all the wrong places. 
there are other places in the Bible that help to see that help us to see that picture as well. One is in the New Testament, book of John, chapter four. You don't have to turn there. But in John four, Jesus is weary, one hundred percent God and one hundred percent human. The human part of him is tired. He's been walking a lot. In John 4, he's passing through Samaria, and he comes to, interestingly, a well. It's the middle of the day, and he sits down to rest, and a woman comes. In the course of conversation, she has brought her water pot to draw water from the well. In the course of conversation, Jesus learns from her that she has had five previous husbands, and the man that she's currently living with will probably eventually be number six. And he identifies her as a woman who has thirsts in her life but who is trying to dig the well of relationships to quench that thirst. By the end of their conversation, Jesus introduces himself as the Messiah, Savior, God who's come. And when that passage ends, that woman becomes so so excited, and it's such a life-changing moment, she completely forgets about the water pot she brought to draw water. She leaves it behind, and she runs into the city to say, come and hear a man who told me everything that I've ever done. And she becomes one of the earliest witnesses, I guess we could say, of the beauty of who Jesus is. In the book of Genesis, chapter 11, we find a group of people who want to build a name for themselves. They're thirsty for ambition. They're thirsty for recognition. And they make a decision, come and let us build a tower that will reach to heaven, Genesis chapter 11. And they build this tower that they think will make for themselves a name and will give themselves the prestige and honor that they're thirsty for. And and they build this tower, and God comes down to inspect. And when all is said and done, they fail inspection. The tower is reduced to rubble, and the nations are scattered because there are many temporary remedies that fail to quench the deepest thirsts of our soul. So what are you thirsty for today? What is it that you thirst for? And you know it. You don't need me to tell you what it is. You don't need me to give a list of possibilities. You already know what you're thirsty for. And when I ask you that question, I want to follow it up by asking, so where have you looked and what wells have you dug to try to quench that thirst deep in your soul? Principle number three, and we're done, is not only are we thirsty, And not only are there many, many temporary remedies for our thirst, but Jesus himself, the Bible tells us, is the only pure and the only permanent remedy to quench our thirsts. The picture is an interesting one. It's in John chapter 7. Jesus has come to the end of an eight-day festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And as he comes to the end of that feast, kind of the last day is the culmination, kind of brings it all together. It's the greatest day of the feast. And Jesus steps up and he makes a comment. Look at what he says. It's interesting because his words go all the way back to Jeremiah's day, 600 years or so before. It says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What an interesting statement to make 600 years after the prophet Jeremiah. Jesus would say virtually the same thing. You're thirsty and you know it. There are needs that you have in your life that only God can fill. Whether it's a need for unconditional love or a need for for fulfillment or a need for forgiveness or a need for victory, regardless of what it may be, there is a legitimate thirst in your life that comes because you're not perfect and you need someone to quench that thirst 
You have been looking everywhere else to quench it, but there is only one pure and only one permanent remedy for this thirst. And so Jesus says, for all who thirst, just come to me. Take off those work gloves, lay down your shovel, quit digging those wells that are only going to quench your thirst for a season and come to me, the, the river of living water, and out of your life will flow water as only God could give. He's the only pure and the only lasting remedy. What a contrast. We can either come to that broken cistern and leave empty and thirsty and disillusioned, or we can quit trying to find a quenching of our thirst in our own efforts and just trust it to Jesus and let him give us the life that only he can, to fill us in a way that only he can as we trust him and as we follow him on his terms and not ours. There's a story that is told. Whether it's true or not, I have no idea. But man, what an awesome, amazing principle it teaches. A story of a little church in the mountains of Switzerland that was known not so much for its ministry, sadly, but it was known for the music that it played from the pipe organ that had made, its fa- made, it, made that church famous all in that surrounding area. When the pipe organ would play, people would literally stop what they were doing and they would come to listen as the organist would play song after song. And that song, those songs would echo down across the valley. It was just really something to behold. And life would stop whenever that organ played. One year the organ grew silent and that one year turned into a next and a next till eventually 50 years would pass. And as a result of no one knew that organ had been unable to play. The best in the world had come to check it out and to try to repair it and to no avail. And for 50 years, no sound of that pipe organ would fill that valley the way that it once had. One year, uh, one particular day, uh, an elderly gentleman came and he made his way to the church and he knocked on the door. And the pastor that greeted him was simply asked the question, hey, do you mind if I come and work on that pipe organ? I've heard that it's had some issues and I would like to give it a shot. Well, the pastor said, well, sir, to be honest, I'd hate for you to waste your time. The best in the world have come to try to fix this and none have been able to do so. But if you want to give it a shot, then here's the key to the door and you make your way up to the top and you go ahead and give it a try. And for two days, that man went up there and he began to work on that pipe organ. And he worked and he worked and he worked. He never left that room. He never asked for anything. He just worked and worked and worked. After two days, suddenly, out of the blue, the sound of that organ cranked up. And you could hear it down through the valley. Merchants closed their doors and closed their shops so that they could come and hear. People that were working in the field dropped what they were doing and they came so that they could hear. And, and, and this man played the most beautiful music that had been heard for the last 50 years from this organ that had fallen silent for five decades. Finally, after the little concert was over, he stepped out into the crowd and one person stepped up in boldness and said, Sir, I have to ask a question. For five decades, we've been unable to hear this music and everyone's come to fix this thing. How is it that you, that you could come and do what no one else could? And the man very simply just said, You know, 50 years ago, it was I who built that organ. And so it's only I who can fix it. You know what? You may be a thirsty person today thirsty for fulfillment, for joy, for hope, for forgiveness, and for life. And you've searched everywhere that you can, relationships and accomplishment and acquisitions, and you've surrounded yourself with the finest this world has to offer, but you're still thirsty. And the reason for that is because there is only one who created you and only one who can fix you and me. 
and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. For some of you, you've made the best decision you'll ever make, and that's to give your life to Jesus. But somewhere along the way, you've wandered, and you've pushed him to the curb, and you're thirsty in a way you haven't been in a long time. Hey, the remedy is not to find another quick fix because it's going to leave you thirsty, but to come back to him, the God who saved you to begin with. And for others of you, you've never trusted your life the first time to Jesus. And today, perhaps he's calling you to himself to lay down your sin and to say, Lord Jesus, I surrender. Would you forgive me? And take over my life from this day forward. Hey, where are you thirsty? Where are you turning to quench that thirst? And would you not today decide to say, Lord Jesus, I give it all to you. Let's pray. God, you know our hearts better than we know ourselves. Not a one of us in this building have arrived. Lord, we all have a long way to go to be like you. But God, I do pray that the one thing that we'll keep in mind this morning is that where we thirst and where we hurt and where we ache and where we have needs in our lives, that we would know that this world offers so many temporary fixes, but it's only you who hold the answers to our questions, the solutions to our problems, and who are able to quench the deepest thirst of our lives. And so God, I pray this morning for the one who's sitting maybe in a seat where they didn't feel like, they didn't even know they were going to be confronting these things this morning. But today they've been confronted with things that have really been stirring for a long time. They're hurting and they're empty and they're thirsty in life. And they've never considered giving their lives to Jesus, but today they are. And God, for those people, I pray that they'd be very quick right where they sit to recognize that you're a God who forgives. No matter what we've done, you're a God who forgives. But that forgiveness doesn't come cheaply. You paid for it through the life and death of your own son, But because Jesus is God, he didn't just die in our place, he rose again. And he stands ready to take over every life that is yielded to him today. And so for those that don't know you, Lord, I pray that they'll be very quick this morning to turn from their sin, to confess it to you, and to invite Jesus to come and to forgive it and to take over. And God, for those of us who've already made that decision, but maybe we've begun to wander, we've begun to replace you with something else, and we've we've begun to create distance, I pray that this morning that you'll draw us back home again. Lord, that you will give us the courage to confess our sin to you, not to be saved all over again, but Lord, so that that fellowship might be restored. And so God, give us the courage to quit trying to dig our own wells of fulfillment in our lives, but may we be very quick to just surrender so that you can be the God you want to be in our lives and through our lives. And so as we sing in just a moment, God, help us to make the decisions that we need to, to follow wherever it is that you lead us so that you can get glory the glory you deserve as our creator and as our God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.